So last week, we got through all of nine verses, and we really didn't even get that far because we had to gloss over a couple of them in order to get to verse nine, because there was something in particular I wanted to introduce in verse nine. Last week was really, uh, uh, it was it was very, um, I'll say abstract. There was a lot of sort of laying the groundwork for what the next few weeks will look like. I'm trying to get us used to seeing these themes in Isaiah. For instance, the theme of the suffering servant. And so we spend a lot of time talking about, well, what does that mean when we approach the suffering servant in Isaiah? What is that? We're in 42. 42. Finishing up 42. We started 42 last week. Um, Another thing that we talked about was the difference between, and this was in verse 9, we talked about the difference between sort of everyday time, chronological time, and the sort of sacred time that we as Christians are called to inhabit. The, the Greek language distinguishes between linear time and appointed time, this sort of chronos versus kairos thing. And so we talked a lot about that last week. Um, I don't want to rehash everything that we discussed last week because um, I want to... I want to not only get through 42, but maybe even start 43. We'll see if that's uh, biting off more than we can chew. We'll see, we'll see how that goes. <laughs> However, I do want to return to one thing real quick that we talked about last week, um, especially in regards to the suffering servant. Um, I went back and listened to it, and it occurred to me that um, my use of the method of the Father's different interpretations of Scripture, I think, was a little bit of a distraction because I was trying to make a particular point about the church participating in what Christ is doing. And I think when I brought up the quadriga, which is something that we've been talking about for, I don't know, maybe the better part of a year, this sort of fourfold method that we got from the church fathers of interpreting Scripture, where in every given Scripture passage, you can talk about it literally or historically, you can talk about it morally, you can talk about it Christologically, and then there's this sort of mystical interpretation, which is what I was trying to get us to last week. Um, As I went back and listened to the recording of last week's Sunday School, I realized that my my use of that method of, of going through those was a little bit of a distraction because I think people kind of got hung up on that. I got a couple reactions that were a little bit contradictory on the one hand, I was, I was getting, uh, the, the response that I was getting was, well, you shouldn't say that any of those methods are more important than the other because they all work equally together. And the whole point is to um, learn how to use all of them equally in how we approach Scripture. At the same time, I was also getting, well, you know that seeing Christ in Scripture is the most important thing. Those two things are, that's, that, you see the contradiction there. Um, Now, I do obviously think that all of Scripture is about Christ. 
And if I have to say that, then y'all haven't been listening to anything I've said over the past three years. Christ is the fullness of all of Scripture. That is crystal clear. And there is no question in my mind that everything in Scripture, whether directly or indirectly, whether it seems obvious or it's not obvious at all, everything in Scripture is about Christ. So I'm going to try to make this point again, throwing out the quadriga entirely, and I'm going to see how it lands with y'all. Do you buy the notion that we are the body of Christ? Yes? I'm getting, I'm getting yeses. Christ's body. Yes. But at the same time, not throwing out his actual physical body in glory. Sure. Do you buy the notion that we are filled, as a, as a people, we are filled with the spirit of Christ? Yes, I'm getting nods. Yes. Okay. Do you buy the notion that we are the Israel of God? Yes. Yes. Okay. That's all I'm saying. I'm just saying those three things. Okay. So did we pass? We passed. Look, look what, we, what we're about as a church is about participating in the story of Christ. That's, that's, that's what we're about. As Christians, right? So what I'm saying is that when we encounter passages in Isaiah about the suffering servant, yes, of course, it's about Christ in a literal historical sense. Yes, it's true about Christ in a Christological sense. But there's a way of doing Christology where it's just academic, where it's just in our head. What I'm trying to say is that the Christology of Scripture has to do with our role as Christians. It's a story that we play out. Now, I gave the example last week in church of the prayers of the people, that when we do that, we are, we're participating in part of the gospel story because part of the story of Christ is his continual intercession for us and for the world. So we can talk about that in a sort of intellectual, you know, uh, uh, heady way, or we can practice it and live it out. And as Christians, we're called to live in this story. That's what I'm talking about. So... Um, so there we go. Any thoughts on that before we dive in? Good? Okay. That landed a lot easier than last week did. (laughs) All right. Isaiah 42. I'm going to pick back up in the verses that we kind of glossed over last week. I believe I will start in verse 6. I, the Lord God, have called you in righteousness. He's talking to the servant of God. That's who this is addressed to. All right, so he's talking to Israel. He's talking to Christ and Israel. In as much as he's talking to Israel and Christ, he's also talking to us. I, the Lord God, have called you in righteousness. I will hold fast onto your hand and strengthen you. And I will make you a covenant for the nation to open the eyes of the blind, to lead out those who are bound from their chains and those seated in darkness 
out of prison. I am the Lord God. This is my name. I will not give my glory to another, nor my praises to graven images. I am going to hold off on talking about the graven images part because there is going to be an opportunity in chapter 42 to have a long and very thorough discussion on idolatry and graven images and um, the pagan gods of the old world. We will talk about that in due time. I'm going to hold off on that because anything that I say now will feel incomplete and I want to make sure that we have enough time to really do that justice. Um, so let's talk about the first part of that verse. To open the eyes of the blind, to lead out those who are bound from their chains, and those seated in darkness out of prison. In a sermon either last week or the week before, Nick invoked a passage from Matthew where Christ says of his church that they will participate with him in the binding and loosing of the principalities of the world, of, um, how would you say it, the, the nations? Yeah, I think the way that I put it was in relation to uh, uh, binding and loosing within the church in relation to when we bind, we're basically <coughs> accountable to what, uh, in relation to church discipline or to what Peter, what he tells Peter at the end of Peter's confession. Uh, binding with the gospel itself and then loosing, basically cutting loose uh, the gospel to do its work, but also in church discipline, those that are unrepentant. So, yeah, that's how I, I put it in those two messages. Yeah, it, it's very, um, it's very, I think, theologically correct in a, in a pure and um, unadulterated sense to say that uh, the work of saving and the work of salvation and the work of regeneration and the work of sanctification and all of these fancy words is only done by God. I think that is a theologically true statement. However, in reality, God calls us to participate with him in these things. And this is what I'm getting at. God says things like, if you don't forgive other people, I won't forgive you. God says stuff like this in the Bible, right? So, yes, we have these true statements like, well, it is only God who does these things. However, as Christians, we are called to participate with him in this story. Now, what does that mean? Well, that's what the whole of life is about, is figuring out what that means. Um, at the very least, we can say that sharing the gospel is part of that. You know, God, God saves who he will save, but he uses us to communicate his grace and to live out his grace to other people. And no one in this room became a Christian in a vacuum. You received it from someone else. In my case, I received it from my parents, which I think that's the default. I think most of the time the gospel spreads through the nuclear family. But it was received. It was passed down. I don't think there's anybody in this room who became a Christian in the desert, away from everybody. <laughs> One thing, you know, the covenant, it says this over in multiple places in the Bible where God says, 
I am willing. Are you willing? That's that question. Are you willing? Yeah. And so <clears throat> there has to be something that has to do with will, a little bit from our perspective, that we have to say, I'm willing to do what you're telling me to do. I'm willing to go with you. I'm willing to, I'm willing to follow. I'm willing to connect. I'm willing to be a co-laborer with you. So, you know, yeah. So it is a choice in a sense that we have to make. We have to make it every day. Yeah. Well, I mean, in defense of liturgy in our church, this is one thing that liturgy is trying to get at. You can, you can do church in a way where you're an audience member, or you can do church in a way that you're actively involved to the point that you're engaging your body, and you're standing, and you're sitting, and you're kneeling, and then you're standing and sitting again, and it's uncomfortable how many times you have to stand and sit, and you, um, and you engage the senses. You know, we use beeswax candles in our church. Um, we have, uh, we use colors depending on the church season. Like, this is all engaging the body. So, there's your participation. But we, we should love the Lord our God with our, with, uh, Jesus says it, with our heart, our soul, our body, and our mind, mm-hmm. and our strength. You know, so, I mean, that involves complete, total jumping in with every aspect of who we are. Yeah, well, that's how God loves us. The, that's how God loves us. Yeah, the exactly Word became right. flesh. Yeah. We're trying to return, this, in a sense, the love that God has given us back to him. Absolutely. Um, all right, to open the eyes that are blind, to bring out the prisoners from the dungeon, from the prison, those who sit in darkness. Um, I'll be honest, when I first read this in preparation for this morning, I immediately thought, oh, this is obviously about the harrowing of hell. This is obviously about Christ going into the pit and bringing out the Old Testament saints. Um, I know that not everybody will see it that way. I understand that. Um, However, um, it is, like it or not, it's part of our tradition that that is what happened during the during the time between crucifixion and resurrection, what was Christ up to? Tradition has it that what Christ was doing was setting loose the captives. Um, Is it in Scripture explicitly? It depends. I see it here. (laughs) Um, So what? I mean, he converted people in Gehenna. You just mean he pulled out those who had died in faith, right, and let captivity captain? I wouldn't. I wouldn't use the word Gehenna. Um, I would say that um, when Job says, "My Redeemer lives, and in my flesh I will see Him," the moment where he saw Him in His flesh was that moment. Um, now, this is all very mysterious, and this is not something that we can. Um, there's only so much we can do to talk about this stuff. And it's that way for a reason. He descended to the dead. Yeah, so that's where I was going to go. Um, the Apostles' Creed, our, our version says he descended to the dead. Um, for, for most of the tradition of the Apostles' Creed, it says he descended into hell. The oldest version of the Creed, and Craig and I have actually done quite a bit of research on this. We worked out this a, a number of years ago. 
um, between the two of us. The oldest version of the Apostles' Creed uses the uh, the word um, uh, abyss or, or or lower parts is maybe another way you could say it. So you know this is this is it's sort of left ambiguous, and it's that way in Scripture too when it talks about Christ preaching to the spirits in prison. Well, is he talking about angels? Is he talking about people? What is the place? Because, all again, all it says is like the lower parts or the lower region. Um, Ephesians. Ephesians, yeah. I think there's also something in one of the Peters. I don't remember off the top first, of my head. First Peter, first Peter 3. I, I have been taught that the translation there that he proclaimed, he did not preach. In other words, trying to get away from this thing that once a person has died, they cannot be converted, you know, because there's, is it in Hebrews, what's appointed unto man once to die, and then the judgment. That's what I was just wondering, what, if you were thinking that something could be changed after death, even for those that died, you know, before Christ's coming. They seem to me to have been held in a place, the people who had died in faith in God, until Christ came, and then Christ when it proclaimed victory and drew out those who had died in faith. And drew out those who had died in faith. Yeah, I think that's what I'm getting at. Okay. In terms of when God saves people, that's not something I want to speak into. I was saved before the foundation of the world. So, make of that what you will. Um, I mean, 1 Peter 3, 19 is pretty explicit. It's not... You know, it's not a. It says he went proclaim the spirits in prison. You know, period. Um, that I don't know that that necessarily. To me, that doesn't mean that he he was sharing the gospel with them. Sure. He he was proclaiming what he was just. He was proclaiming his victory. That that's the way I want to understand. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I could be wrong. Use the gospel of it, not the gospel of death. Yeah. yeah. At that point, he would have been proving, you know, he had he said he was going to die. Here I am, dead. So long. Yeah. Well, I'll also say that, you know, in my invoking the harrowing of hell here, I'm not saying anything new that we haven't already been discussing as a church. I mean, it wasn't that long ago, within the past month, that Nick invoked Psalm 24, and. Um, in a way that Psalm 24 was about the harrowing of hell. So we're already talking about this stuff here at this church. Um, I'm just kind of bringing it to, I'm making it a little more explicit, you could say. Um, this is all very mysterious, but that's how, I mean, that the gospel is mysterious. So, um, yeah, go ahead. Could you add that the Lord created hell, and he's also yeah. the Lord of hell. That's right. He owns it. He created everything. Well, he has the keys of it for sure. And yes, and even if the psalm says, even if I go there, behold, his presence is there. Mm-hmm. But he's he's the master of our secrets. Sproul used to say when he went and he came back, he, he sort of described it as a chain where Christ had all of these enemies chained behind him and, and did that work, whatever all of that was, and was was confident for everything. Yeah. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to riff off of what you just said because I agree 100% with it. God is the Lord of hell. Um, we have sort of this idea that um, hell is separation from God. And I don't know where that came from. I know C.S. Lewis uses that imagery where in The Great Divorce, which I love that book. The Great Divorce is such a good book. 
but it's wrong in this one area where it talks about hell as being this place of separation. Fire in Scripture is always a symbol of God's presence. Now, it can be the fire of Pentecost, or it can be the fire of eternal torment, but it is fire nonetheless. Every time in Scripture you encounter fire, that, that means the presence of God. So, so the fire in hell and the fire of heaven are both being in the presence of God. Now, being in God's presence is an inevitability. It's just whether or not that will be a moment of joy for you or a moment of despair. But you will be in God's presence one way or another for all of eternity. You don't want to be in the presence of his wrath. Yes. No. no. But this is the wrath that Christ suffered. For us. It is a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Yeah. Um... Yeah, that's all I want to say about that. I am the Lord, that is my name. My glory I give to no other, nor my praise to carved idols. Behold, the former things have come to pass, and new things I now declare. Before they spring forth, I tell you of them. Uh, we talked a lot about that verse 9. I'll just, we, you can go back and listen to that. We'll move on to verse 10. Can I uh, ask you a question about uh, verse 6 before you go on? Oh, please. Uh, I may have just missed this, but uh, in the Masoretic text, the last line is a light to the Gentiles. I said nation in Greek. That's the same thing. Oh, yeah, yeah, it's the same thing. Yeah. Sing a new song to the Lord. It is His rule. Extol His name from the end of the earth. You who go down to the sea and sail it, you islands, and you who dwell in them. I'll read a few verses here at once. Be cheerful desert and its villages, unwalled villages, and those who inhabit Kedar, those who inhabit Petra, will be cheerful. From the topmost point of the mountains, they will shout. They will give glory to God. They will announce his praises among the islands. Alright, so there's this call to uh, let God's praises ring from the furthermost ends of the earth. In the ancient way of thinking, when it invokes the coastlands and the sea, that's the edge of the map. You know, the reason that, I, I mentioned this a few weeks back, the reason that um, Jonah sails to Tarshish in particular is because Tarshish is, in the ancient worldview, that's as far as you can get. You don't get any further west than Spain. That's it. Um, so it's not so much about, there's nothing special about it being from the coastlands in particular as much as it is like, this is as far as you can go. His praises go as far as they possibly can. The whole map is covered with the praise of Yahweh. Um, at this point, I want to invoke something from chapter 12, which is quite a while ago in our study, but I think it's important. Throughout Isaiah, there are these calls, these just sort of like um, moments where he breaks out into song. It's almost like he just can't handle it anymore, and he just starts singing. So this is another one of those places. Um, and it's talking about this sort of praise of Yahweh covering the entire map at the end of time. right? So that's what this is about. You will say, in that day, 
I will give thanks to you, O Lord, for though you were angry with me, your anger turned away, that you might comfort me. Behold, God is my salvation. I will trust and will not be afraid. For the Lord God is my strength and my song, and he has become my salvation. Does that, um, does that, cup, that pair of lines there at the end, the Lord is my strength and my song, he has become my salvation, do you remember that from anywhere else in Scripture? It's the songs they were singing either after the Red Sea event or right before it. That is the Correct. Yeah, it's the song of Moses. The song of Moses, that's right. All right, so um, what we have here in these songs of Isaiah is a playing out of what we were just told in verse 9. It's a mix of old and new, a bringing out of old things and new things. So we are singing a new song to the Lord and we're singing songs from the Old Testament. Now, let's, uh, let's bring up the church in this because, again, I think that these things have a lot to say about who we are as a church. Um, do we do that on Sunday mornings? Do we bring out a mix of old and new in how we worship? I hope so because that's what we're supposed to be doing. I hope that's what we're doing. Because that is, I think that's the example that we're given in Scripture. Our worship is to be a mix of old and new. Be careful when you put new wine and old skins. <laughs> yeah, but it's, but, but it's good to have both. It's good to have both. Old wine is good. Well, Jesus invokes this in Matthew 13. That long list of parables toward the end, he says, you know, every every scribe who has been trained for the kingdom of heaven uh, is like a master of a house who brings out of his treasure what is new, what is old. Yes. <laughs> well, uh, this this stuff that you've been bringing out in this uh, study of Isaiah is that new stuff or old stuff? It's new to most of us, but it's very ancient stuff. It's true. Together. Yes. Well, hopefully that's hopefully that's a good sign for us that what we have in what we're discussing and what we're talking about and what we're sort of sitting in is um, you know it has the it has the feel of freshness to it, but it's old stuff. I mean, to talk about Christus Victor, to talk about Christ. Uh, ruling over the principalities and the rulers. I mean, that that existed way before thinking about salvation as a courtroom thing. Yeah. That's, yeah, go ahead. One of my favorite uh, things in Revelation is where Jesus declares, Behold, I'm making all things new. I love that verse. It's just, yeah. Kierkegaard uh, said the difference between a genius and, a, and an apostle is that the work of the genius very quickly becomes mundane. Think of the light bulb. The work of the apostle is a revelation in every generation. I was just thinking about even I mean, sharing the gospel when a person comes to faith in Christ. I mean, the gospel's been around for a long time. Yeah, even in the Old Testament time. But as that person comes into faith, I mean, it's brand new, brand yes. new stuff. I believe it's in the Psalms, your mercies are new every morning. Yeah. Every morning. Lamentations. There's lamentations. 
probably shows up more than once. Yeah, yeah, it probably does. <laughs> that well, so, in some ways, it doesn't hurt to get, get saved again every day. <laughs> well, I would I would say that I would say that salvation is not something that you can confine to a particular moment. It's not like you were saved and now you are. It doesn't work like that. It's, yeah. You're always being saved. Look, before Christianity was ever called Christianity, it was called the way. It's, a, it's the journey, man. It's, it's the path. Um, that's always been what Christianity is about. Well, Paul refers to it that way, right? He says, you know, those who are being saved. I mean, there's this idea that you yeah. were saved, you are being saved, and yeah. The eternal moment idea yeah. in our salvation. And when you give up this body for a glorified body, you will be saved. Yeah, <laughs> yeah there's there's a part of our salvation that's still to come. We're not fully saved yet. And I like to remember that uh, that verse. Um, yeah. He's faithful to complete that which he began in you. Yeah. Yeah. He rebirthed your spirit. Yeah. Part of this has to do again with with the perspective of time that we're looking from. From the perspective of Kairos, the, the eternally present moment, we are already seated with Christ. We're not only saved, we're already in heaven. It's already done. Yeah. It's done. Right. But but I'm sitting here. Yeah. So Yeah. So part of it has to do with whether you're seeing this from human perspective or from God's perspective. Um, and that's where I think it's important to distinguish between these different ideas of time. English is really stunted in some ways, and we only use this, we use one word to describe all of it, but the, the eternal moment and linear time are two very different things, and the Greeks had a much better understanding of this. The Greeks were very precise in their language. They were... Um, something we can all stand to learn from. You know, they had four different words for the word love. Yeah. So, all right. Um, they will give glory to God. They will, not, they will announce his praises among the islands. The Lord, the God of power, will go out and annihilate his enemies in war. He will arouse his zeal and will shout over his enemies with power. Now, now it's God talking. I was silent. Must I always be silent and content? Like a woman in labor, I persevered. All right. Thus begins this, you know, sort of um, section where Yahweh himself talks. We said already that the mark of the suffering servant is his silence. And we saw this uh, we saw this lived out by Christ in front of Pilate, where when he's beaten and bloody and he is the, he is as much of the suffering servant of Yahweh as you can get, he is silent before Pilate. All right, so there's a principle. The mark of the suffering servant is his silence. But now we see that the God-man gives a war cry. We also saw Christ do that. And we saw him do it on the cross. So 
Do you remember what he said? What his war cry was on the cross? It is finished. Yes. It's a cry of victory. That is that is what the ancients meant by Christus Victor. Right? Christ proclaims his victory over over everything. Um so there's a little bit of a paradox here, but we see both the silence of the servant and the uh, glorious victory cry of the servant of God. And we see both of those um, in the person of Christ at his moment of death. Um, it occurred to me sometime this week, and I don't remember exactly when it was, but it, was, it felt like an epiphany. And it may seem obvious to you, but it wasn't to me at the time that the suffering of Christ and His glory are the same thing. Multiple times in the Gospels, Christ says, my hour of glory has not yet come. What is that hour of glory that He was referring to? He was referring to the cross. This is the moment where He is lifted up and His victorious rule is proclaimed over the world. That's the moment when he gives his victory cry, when he proclaims it is finished. It's on the cross. His suffering and his glory are the same thing. So, for us as the church, uh, what is our glory? Well, the servant's glory is not going to be greater than his master's glory. Our glory is to be on the cross with him. That's our glory. To be crucified with Christ, we no longer live. It is Christ who lives in us. Um, yeah, talk to me. Thank you. Yeah. It leaves the Father of Jerusalem. And I think about someone else who missed you. Could you say that Christ took the wrath of God and he on himself at that moment? Say that one more time. I'm saying that it's a picture of Christ taking the wrath. You mean when he said, Why have you forsaken me? Yeah. He's letting us all know out loud that it had happened. Yes, so I mean, I, I agree with that, but again, this is something that we're called to participate in at the same time. Um, well, we're, we're, we're free from the wrath of God, but not the wrath of men. Uh, there's a great verse early on in Acts where you know they've been arrested and they're they're beaten. The, the apostles are beaten and sent home and told never to speak the gospel again. And they go go away rejoicing that they are counted worthy to suffer for the name. I believe it was Paul who said that he knew that it was his responsibility to finish what was lacking in Christ's afflictions. What the heck does that mean? That's a tough one. That's a tough one. Yeah. Right? But it means something like we're called to, to go to the cross with Christ. That's that's right. our calling. Paul says this is the one to know Christ in the power of the resurrection and in the fellowship of his suffering. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, you mentioned we are the body of Christ. Uh, time goes on. Christ is no longer here. You know, this you know, he was appointed to suffer once, 
uh, but his body, you know, continues on, uh, you know, through the march of time until he decides to end it, and we are to be conformed to his image, you know, yeah. not conformed to his glorious image here, or conformed to his suffering image, and then later on, you take on his glory. I've been told that the that um, sometimes when I'm sitting here leading these discussions, uh, sometimes it's a little too abstract and it's not practical enough. Um, and I, I strongly disagree with that <laughs> because uh, this is this is the kind of thing that I'm trying to bring to our attention is is the responsibility of taking up our crosses and following Christ. That's as practical as it gets. And everybody here has a cross to bear. And you already know what your cross is. Everybody here knows what their cross is. No one else has to be told what their cross is. Pick it up and bear it until the day you die. And there, on that road to Golgotha, you'll learn what it means to be a Christian. I think Ignatius of Antioch, one of my favorite lines from him is in his epistle to the Ephesians on his way to the Colosseum to die by being eaten alive by lions. And he says, now I know what it means to be a Christian. Yeah. That's a great line. Yeah. Yeah, well, every, everybody here is suffering in one way or another. Some of some people's suffering is greater than other people's, but no one knows if that, I mean, how do you know if that's true or not? You can't know another person's suffering. Um, pick up your cross and bear it. And and that is, yeah, that, that's what it means to be a disciple. I think it was Bonhoeffer who said, when Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. Yes, yeah. So. Yes, we have to suffer. We, we go through something that I always think of the glory came after the suffering on the cross. He had to do that so that we could be saved, but that wasn't where the glory was. The glory was after he did it, and then he was raised, and that was the glory of Christ. Is that, is that wrong? Or, I mean, because you're saying the glory was the cross. But the glory was that he went through the cross. He suffered and died for us. He took his sins upon him, our sins upon himself. What is glory? Well, yeah. The, uh, and that's a, well, let's hang out there for a minute. That's a word that we don't use very often. Well, in Hebrew, it means heaviness. It's something that's heavy. Yeah. It's the same word that's used for the liver on the heavy. It's heavy. The, uh, God doesn't need anything, and yet we see several times He talks about glory and glorifying Him. I've always felt like it was for our sake that He wanted us to glorify Him. Because when you look to Him, you know that's the way to salvation. That's why I believe He wants to be glorified. You know, He doesn't need anything. I don't think He feels bigger because we grasp after Him. You know, I think it's for our sake that He wants uh, to be glorified. In in uh, Colossians two. 15, Paul's talking about Christ and he says, having disarmed principalities and powers, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them in the cross. So, you know, it's very much, this, this was the moment of victory. 
He used death to defeat death, which is the great work of Satan. You know, the powers and principalities. So it is very much a glorious thing. But, but you know, we see it as a terrible tragedy, but it's not a terrible tragedy. It's, oh, no, it was no, God's plan from before the right. foundation. Right. And that's good. That's good. Our, I think our, I think our Catholic friends have this right that the cross is not just something that happened at one particular moment in time. The Catholics really understand that the cross is the eternal moment. They really understand this. And so in Revelation, at the end of time, when everything is made right and God said, Behold, I make all things new. What does God look like? Well, He looks like the Lamb who was slain. The crucifixion from you know, that moment in history suffered under Pontius Pilate was a physical demonstration of a spiritual truth. Okay, what was that? It is a physical demonstration what, 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 what? the crucifixion. Okay. And that's not the only thing. I mean, all history is filled with these moments. Spiritual truths that God chooses to make a physical demonstration of it. I mean, we're, and it's for our benefit. We're locked into time and space. Would somebody look up for me Proverbs 8.26? Well, I'm looking at you think about it. You know, you have the pre-incarnate Christ, and you have the uh, Christ who died on the cross. And so, in a sense, returning to heaven, going back to heaven, he's different now because he has these wounds. So, he has the body that he got from Mary. Indeed. Someone read Proverbs 8.26. Before he made the earth with its fields or the first of the dust of the world. That's all God says. Mm, I may have... Hang on. Let me... I may be reading the wrong one. Uh, maybe 22, 23 along there. If you would read 23 through 27. Okay. Uh, ages ago I was set up. First, before the beginning of the earth, when there were no depths, I was brought forth, when there were no springs about in the water. Before the mountains had been shaped, before the hills, I was brought forth. Before he had made the earth with his fields, or the dust, first of the dust of the world, when he established the heavens, I was there when he drew a circle on the face of the deep. When he made the skies above, when he established the fountains of the deep, how far? Oh, that's good. Okay. Um, I believe it is in verse 25. Before the mountains had been shaped, before the hills, I was brought forth. Ah, there it is. Yes. Brought forth. That verb. Uh, that's the verb I'm looking for. Brought forth. Terrible translation. Yeah. Um, it, it actually means to writhe in pain. They didn't know how to translate this, so they went with something vague because they don't know what it means. Before the earth was formed, Christ was already slain. Oh, yeah. Well, in verse 23, 
I have been established before it from everlasting. Established can be translated as poured out. So it's all very much about. Yeah. And this is wisdom. He's thinking about wisdom, which is understood by the church to mean Christ. Christ, the wisdom of God. Yeah. So it's very much about Christ's suffering. Anything else on this before we move on? Well, right in here in this passage, I mean, there, as you say, there are a lot of these verbs here that are not more than one that are just difficult to yeah. translate uh, correctly. Yeah. Um, you'll notice that in both Isaiah 42 and Proverbs 8, it uses the, um, uh, the analogy of a woman in labor. There's something in common that both of those passages share. All right. Um, for a long time, I've held my peace. I've kept still and restrained myself. I think it's worth pointing out that um, even though Christ, and it's very clear in Scripture that Christ feels emotion, he is also in control of his emotions. Right? And so he, he, he shows us, you know, for the, for the men here in the room, he gives us the example of, of how, as a man, to, to control your emotions. It doesn't mean to not feel. And it doesn't mean uh, to just be stoic, but he, he harnesses his emotions in a completely controlled way. He is the ultimate human. That's Christ, the ultimate human. And our humanity, through Christ, is seated with God because of Christ. All right, so... Uh, an example, uh, probably my favorite example, is when Christ cleanses the temple. Um, you know, what Christ does is he, he drives out cattle, people, overturning tables. Uh, it's quite the chaotic scene. You don't do that from a place of... Uh, 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 that's not Christ like he looks like on some of those icons, you know, where he's just kind of standing there pale and like the world has no effect on him and he's, get the hints, like that's not, that's not the Christ that we see in the cleansing of the temple, you know, he's like a, he's like a, uh, like a locomotive and they're like a, uh, yeah, like a bulldozer. I just, I just wanted to say something that as you're talking about that. Yeah. When these verses are talking about the woman being in labor, and it reminds me of just before I finally repented of my sins. You know that I was just a wreck. I was a complete total wreck, and I needed to be cleaned out so badly. You yeah. Know? And yeah. You and although we are being saved every day, you yeah. That initial moment. Yeah. Sure. Absolutely. This stuff has to manifest itself in moments of time, for sure. Yeah. And when Christ does it, when Christ when Christ cleans us out, He's passionate about it because He cares about it. You know, it, it, emotions are part of being human. However, Christ takes the time to fashion a whip. That takes some time. So this wasn't an outburst of anger. This was. This was, uh, he was in complete control the whole time. He took the time to fashion a whip. That takes, that takes some, uh, it takes, uh, it takes forethought. And, and it, it, it was a premeditated act of aggression. 
So yeah, when, uh, when he cleans his up, it's sort of like driving the mind changers out of the town. Yeah. yeah, your heart, your heart is meant to be the house of God the Father. I think this is kind of what Teresa of Avila is getting at her yeah. interior castle a little bit as well. Maybe I'm wrong on that. Yeah. Mark's, in Mark's gospel, we see that Jesus goes into the temple the night before, looks around, goes home, comes back in the morning. Yeah. This very forceful thing, as you're saying, but it was not rash. No. You know, he checks things out. Yes. Gives him time to repent. I can sleep on it. Yeah. And he goes after it. My guess is that he raised his voice. You think? <laughs> you think? And it's an amazing thing to see the think that one one man can stop all the activity all around the temple. Yeah. yeah. And um yeah, well, I mean, he, Christ is... All right, so the psychologists and people who you know talk about self-help and bettering yourself and all this stuff, they talk about being integrated. That's a term that you might come up, you might hear, is being integrated. Well, Christ, <laughs> Christ is as integrated as it gets. <laughs> right, so we see the proper use of emotion in the person of Christ. I think this is important as we think about what does it mean to be human and who are we in this story um, because a lot of that is tied with, well, what does it mean to be a man or a woman? We have all of these emotions raging inside us. How do we deal with them? Um, well, we see in the person of Christ that the answer is not lack of emotion. That's not the answer. It's not lack of emotion. Um, but he harnesses it. So... Christ is the Christ is the fullest human. That's really all there is to say about it. I will lay waste mountains and hills and dry up all their vegetation. I will turn the rivers into islands. This is the cleansing of the temple, by the way. The world is the temple of God. We have seen that all the way back in Genesis 1. That creation is meant to be the place where God interacts with man. It's a temple. The cosmos is a temple. So what we're seeing here in this section is... Christ cleansing the temple on a cosmic scale. It's the same story. It's the cleansing of the temple. I will lay waste mountains and hills. I will dry up the vegetation. I will turn rivers into islands and dry up the pools. He's turning over the tables, uh, casting the, the robbers out. I will lead the blind in a way they do not know, in paths that they have not known. I will guide them. I will turn the darkness before them into light, the rough places into level ground. These are the things I do, and I do not forsake them. They are turned back and utterly put to shame who trust in carved idols, who say to metal images, you are our gods. Money is a metal god. It's a metal image. And uh, God will not have it. He will not have it in his temple. Um, there, is a, there is a reason... Again, I'm going to bring this back to the church because this is how I'm thinking about this stuff. What does this have to say about the church? There is a reason in our service that we don't pass an offering plate during the service. We have an offering plate, but it's outside the sanctuary. We do this. This stuff is not arbitrary. This, this is the stuff that happens in our church service has been honed over decades of of walking with the scriptures and trying to figure out how to play this stuff out. 
we do not pass the offering plate during our service for this very reason. So. We on the temple too, so he's got to come in and clean us up. Yep. So all of us need to be cleansed. Yep. Um, I will say one thing about the uh, metal images, the uh, carved idols, and then I'll leave it alone because, again, I'm trying to save it for chapter uh, 44 in a couple weeks when we get to it. It's this next verse, the very next thing he says. What I have here in my Bible is a subheading that separates verse 17 and 18. Uh, those subheadings are not helpful. We need to think of this as one scroll and one flow of thought. These verse numbers didn't exist. These chapter numbers didn't exist. Right. We need to be thinking of this as one continuous scroll of Isaiah. So right after he says, you who trust in carved idols, you who trust in metal images, he says, listen, you deaf, and look, you blind, that you may see. Here's a principle of reality. You become what you pay attention to. I have been saying now for weeks that, and really longer than that, but I've been saying it more frequently, uh, that worship, at the end of the day, is just attention. What, whatever you give attention to, that's what you're worshiping. If you trust in metal images, and in this case, they're literally trusting in these carved metal gods you become like that carved metal thing your senses literally become dulled right you become what you pay attention to and whatever your ideal is that's what you become molded after and shaped after we are clay we are not these uh we are not these static unchanging things you know we we change to look like whatever our, our ideal is. And this is just a principle of reality. So fix your attention on the highest thing because anything less than that is, is idolatry. Um, there's so much more I could say about that that I'm trying to, trying to censor myself and wait for chapter 44 um, because I have, in my own life, I've even though I say this, I've been experimenting with icons, and so how do those things work together? There's stuff I can say about this and I'm trying to hold off. Um, you only are conformed to the image of Christ in as much as you have your gaze fixed on the image of Christ. The reason why the second commandment was given, you will not make any image of God is because Christ is the image of God. He already had given an image of God for his people, and that is the person of Christ. And anything less than the person of Christ is an idol for the attention of your heart. It's 1030. Thank you all. Thank you. Thank you.